most of the chapter, um, so I think we'll forego the standing this morning just because there's a good bit there, um, though we respect God's Word nonetheless, um, of course, as, because when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. Uh, but I want to set the stage for Matthew 13 a little bit. Um, you remember, what's the overarching purpose of Matthew? We said at the beginning of the series that the overarching purpose of Matthew is to prove that Jesus is king and to give instruction about his kingdom and how to follow the king. So those three things, to prove that Jesus is king, to give instructions about his kingdom and how to follow the king. And Matthew's been doing those already in measure. Uh, a lot of what has happened in the gospel so far has proved that Jesus is king. He's given some instructions about the kingdom. He's definitely given instructions about how to follow the king. We think of Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. But what we've also seen in the plot development so far is increasing opposition. Though Jesus has given clear revelation, uh, though he has uh, demonstrated again and again and again that he is the Messiah, he's, he's proclaiming the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. We've seen increasing opposition culminating in what we saw in chapter 12. Uh, even among John the Baptist and 11, uh, there's questions, are you the Messiah? But then we see Jesus denounce the cities where he did most of his miracles. And then at the end of 12, what we saw is he denounced the entire generation, the entire generation of Israelites that he administered to. It was decisive and culminating. It wasn't just a few cities anymore. It was the entirety of this generation that he denounced. And it kind of capstone of chapter 12 we saw is, who are my mother and my brothers, right? Who's my family? It's not the family that's biologically related to me. It's actually the disciples, which feeds into more and more what we see with the gospel of Matthew progressing. But there's kind of a big question now in the plot, right? The plot of Matthew. We're, we're not even halfway through Matthew yet. So what the, the big question, both for the disciples, for the crowds, for what was going on originally in Jesus' context, but also for Matthew's audience of Jewish Christians, what now? What now? If the door closed on Jesus' generation, what now? What happens next? And we start to see the answer of that question in the ensuing chapters, but we especially are going to see it in Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is part of the key answer to that question and give, does one of the key purposes that Matthew needed and, and designed his gospel for to give instruction about the kingdom. And so that's where we're headed with this. And so with that little bit of backdrop there, let's go ahead and read Matthew 13, 1 through 53. What we're doing this morning is a little bit different than what our normal sermon um, format uh, what we're going to do is sort of like what we did with the Sermon on the Mount, where I'm going to give you an introduction, an overview of Matthew 13. Since it is such an important chapter, and people have a lot of thoughts about it, I want to do some overview, and then we'll start marching through it next week. But let's go ahead, as part of that, let's go ahead and read Matthew 13, 1 through 53. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told, many, he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. 
And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. He put, before, uh, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds along with the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore uh, grain, the, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles and be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. 
I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of, this, of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and, and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad." So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come. They will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you told these parables. It was a change in your ministry, and uh, Lord, they're hard. They're hard to understand. We thank you that you have given explanations in the parables. Help us to understand the parables and help us to live in light of them. Lord, there are profound truths here. There are profound riches. Holy Spirit, illumine our eyes to see and our ears to hear, and change us, O oh Lord, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. So really the big idea this morning is kind of a interesting big idea, but it, basically it's this. Let's answer some key questions about the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13 to be able to interpret and apply them rightly. That's what I want to do for you this morning, is just to give you an overview, uh, a jet flyby of the parables so that there's no confusion, so that when we launch into them in the coming weeks, we have the framework to be able to interpret them rightly. And so the way we're going to do that is just answering questions. So you might be uh, astonished to see eight questions um, in your bulletin this morning, uh, but that's how we're going to walk through these. Some of these will be pretty quick, some will take a little bit more time, but I would argue all of them are helpful in giving a framework for understanding and interpreting rightly the parables. We're familiar with the parables, or at least we've probably read them or heard about them, and we've got different ideas about the parables. But let's take some time to understand them so that we can interpret and understand them rightly. Because, as Jesus says a couple times in the chapter, he who has ears, let him hear. Meaning, listen up, take some time to listen very closely. And so that I want to set the framework for that this morning. So first, let's answer this question. What is a parable? What is a parable? Well, uh, the Greek word is parabole. 
Now that's imaginative, isn't it, right? We just took uh, from Greek all the way into English and we just said um, parable. Okay, that doesn't tell us anything. Well, the Greek word parabole comes from the word para and balo, which means if you were to kind of, you can't do this with every Greek word. It's like butterfly. If I separate butter and fly, uh, that doesn't work if I try to put the meaning together of each of those individual things. This one, it works. Uh, to cast alongside is what parable would literally mean, to cast alongside, which really it developed into this idea of a comparison. If you were to just get, uh, if I was to actually translate the word, not just transliterate the word parable, it would be comparison. That's what a parable is. It's a comparison. But it's a little bit more than just any old comparison. There's a little bit more to it than that. In fact, this was a, uh, a, this was a form that was known at that time. If you notice in verse 10, when the disciples come up to him after the parable of the sower, disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Meaning what? They recognized the form of what Jesus was speaking, and they recognized it as a particular form that they had heard before. Uh, this was a common, uh, it seems to be, even from what we can discern from extra-biblical literature, this was a common way of teaching at that time. And what you would do is you would take an everyday sort of experience or situation, and then you would use that as a teaching platform to illustrate, to talk about profound realities. And it took wisdom to be able to discern those correspondences. Actually, what's very interesting is this form of teaching, it seems, uh, used to be kind of despised. Like you got the scribes and the Pharisees and they're, they're exegetes of the law, right? They're teaching on the law. So here's Deuteronomy 23, verse two, and we're, we're understanding that and then we're applying that. Um, but anyone can tell a story. And so in this sense, uh, in some circles, the, the, the form of a parable was actually despised. So if we were to kind of give a definition for a parable, here's what it would be. Here's what it would be. A parable is a form of wisdom discourse, forming a comparison, that's the key word, with common to life scenarios, and reality in order to teach profound truths. I'll say it again. A parable is a form of wisdom discourse. We know about wisdom discourse. We see the Proverbs. We see Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Parable is a form of wisdom discourse, forming a comparison, that's the key word again, with common-to-life scenarios and reality, that's the comparison you're drawing. So here's a life scenario, here's the reality it's comparing with in order to teach profound truths. That's what a parable is. Now, um, there's some myths about interpreting parables, and so I want to bust a few myths uh, before we go into this. So myth number one about interpreting parables. You'll hear a lot of people say, well, parables are not allegorical. And I would say that's a myth. That's a misconception because, well, what is an allegory? Let's start there. An allegory is like, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, where you've got situations and characters connecting with profound realities. Well, based on what Jesus does in, say, the parable of the sower or the parable of the tares, that's exactly what he's doing, isn't he? 
He's drawing a, that's what a parable is. You're drawing a comparison, a correspondence between characters and situations and spiritual reality. So we can't just say, uh, we can't say they're not allegorical. Now, I think what people mean by this is you can't do what, say, like Augustine did with the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, um, the innkeeper is Paul, and the gospel is the donkey, and he did, like, everything in that story he drew to some other reality. It's like, whoa, you went way beyond the context and made some subjective choices there. Of course, we're not doing that. But as we can see here, there are correspondences, but there are correspondences intended by the author that we need to uncover. So that's myth number one, that parables aren't allegorical. They are. Uh, They may not mean every detail represents something, but they have a high degree of correspondence. We know that because of what Jesus does with the sower and the tares. Uh, Here's another myth, myth number two. There's only one main point to a parable. I was told this one growing up a lot, that there's only one main point to a parable. Now, certainly it's true that the parables have one main kind of thrust, but you can see again from the sower and the parable of the tares that uh, Jesus is communicating quite a lot of truth from these parables. It's not just one thing. Uh, Is it about uh, the mixture of the kingdom in the parable of the uh, the, the parable of the tares, or is it about the judgment? Well, he's communicating both. He's communicating about complex realities. So you got to be careful of just saying there's one main point. There's a lot going on. That's what they're designed to do. They're designed to compare everyday occurrences with ultimate reality, and that comparison can be pretty complex and not just teach one thing. That's the second myth, that they only teach one main point. They teach more than just one one thing. Third would be this. Um, Have you ever heard people say that, well, Jesus taught in parables because it's everyday kind of stuff and it makes it easier to understand? You ever heard that? Well, that's a myth, my friends, because even as you probably already saw when we read through it, actually the parables are supposed to do the exact opposite. They're supposed to make things harder to understand. So no wonder it's so difficult in interpreting them because Jesus intended it that way. So that's the third myth, that they're designed to make it easier to understand Jesus' message. Actually, as we will see, it is the exact opposite. So here's kind of one, as we leave this question of what is a parable, here's what you need to take away. When you look at a parable, you know that all these details and situations, there's a correspondence in reality. You can't press every detail. Some of the details are just there for setting, like a stage. They're just there to fill out the picture. So you can't press every detail, but neither can you ignore the details because Jesus picks up on some of the details and they're important. You need to discern which are intended correspondences in the parable and which are there for merely purposes of setting. And you're like, well, how do I do that? That's why parables are a wisdom discourse. Uh, Wisdom means you need discernment to figure it out and to think about what's going on. So that is what a parable is, and some thoughts on parables. Okay, next question. What is the context of the parables of the kingdom? We, We interpret the scriptures by context, and there's multiple layers of context. If you're thinking about context as like, or a passage, like a like a center of a bullseye. So I'm dealing with Matthew 13. That's the center of my bullseye. But there's things surrounding Matthew 13, like a, 
like the bullseye, and those have an infor- uh, they inform what's going on in Matthew 13. So let's do a couple layers of context here. Let's go, let's zoom out, big picture context. We've said that Matthew has built his gospel around five discourses, five main teaching sections in the book. And Matthew 13 is the third. It's the third. Surrounding these discourses, these teaching sections of of Jesus are narrative. They're telling the story. They're advancing the plot. But the discourses are very important to Matthew. How do I know that? Because at the last, after the last discourse in Matthew 26, 1, Matthew says this, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, meaning all of these things, all of those discourses end with a phrase like that, these are important to Matthew. They connect with Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where the Great Commission, where the command is make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. What did Jesus command? He commanded a lot, but if you want a summary form, look at the five discourses. Look at the five discourses. Well, the way the discourses are put together and the way they progress is intentional. Let's think about this for a minute. Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. It it starts with blessings. Blessed are they who blank. It happens on a mountain, and it talks about kingdom righteousness. Fast forward to the fifth discourse, Matthew, let's say, 23 through 25, and what we're going to see there is woes, not blessings. It's going to be on a mountain, and it's going to talk about kingdom perseverance. You see how those correspond with one another? And that happens as you stair-step in. So that's one stair-step. That's the base level. Let's stair-step into the second and the fourth. Second main discourse was Matthew 10, the mission to Israel. Jesus is sending off his apostles to speak to Israel, to proclaim the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. What about Matthew 18? Matthew 18 is all about, uh, the, about the, what is going to become the core of the church, the disciples, and how do you deal with the church? So we got Israel and the church and instructions to the disciples in each of those cases, which means right smack dab in the center is Matthew 13. And when you have that sort of stair-step pattern, it happens all over in the scripture. It's called a chiasm, but you don't need to remember that. You just need to remember what it points to. If I'm on this stair-step and these guys match, Matthew 5 through 7 and Matthew 23 through 25, and then I step in and Matthew 10 and Matthew 18 correspond to one another, well, and then I've got Matthew 13 as the focal point, what does that mean? It means Matthew 13 is pretty important. It's pretty important teaching that Jesus is trying to relay. And as we will see, it's fulfilling that purpose of giving instruction about the kingdom, especially since Jesus has definitively rejected this generation. Which leads us to another layer of context. Notice verse 13.1. That same day. That's important. Why? Because it's telling us Jesus teaching from the boat all these parables, and, you know, as he moves around, he goes into a house later, but it's the same exact day as what happened in Matthew 12, which was what? We saw it last week, Jesus' decisive rejection of that generation of Israel, which means what? One of the things informing what is going on in Matthew 13 is the rejection of of that generation of Israel. It's the same day. 
That's a key contextual indicator that we need to point to. Here's another layer of context we need to think about. I mean, as we walked through the parables, as we read through them, we saw everyday stuff like sowing and reaping, uh, a dragnet. We got the, the mustard seed thing going on. That's like everyday kind of stuff. That's what a parable is. You have everyday realities corresponding with profound truths. Well, the problem is, is we're 2,000-ish years separated from Galilee. There's a lot that's different between everyday life in Hood River in the 21st century than what's going on in Galilee in the first, right? So we're going to have to do a little bit of work to understand what was everyday life that informs some of these parables. What was Jesus talking about? They would have just gotten it because it was everyday life for them. We're going to have to do a little bit more work, and that's one of the layers of context for these parables. So we'll try to do that as we walk through them. Here's another one we might not think about as much. Did you notice, especially the first few parables, that they like seem very similar, right? A guy goes out and sows seed in a field. What happens in the next parable? A guy goes out and sows seed in a field. What happens in the next parable? A guy takes a mustard seed and sows it in his field. Does that seem similar to you? Yeah, there's, there's, and when the scriptures do that, when Jesus is doing that, that's intentional. That's intentional repetition. Well, what does that mean then? It means then not only looking at the parables as isolated life little stories, but at least as far as Matthew 13 is concerned, they inform one another. In fact, there's a plot going on at least between some of the parables. They elaborate on one another. So part of the context of a parable might be another parable. And we need to keep that in mind as we walk through these. So we've answered the question, what is a parable? We've answered the question, what are the context of the parables of the kingdom? And when we talk about the parables of the kingdom, we're specifically referring to Matthew 13. Jesus does other parables, but specifically we're focusing in on the parables in Matthew 13, the parables of the kingdom. Next question, what is the content? What is the content of the parables of the kingdom. In other words, what are they talking about? Specifically, not the everyday life stuff, but their correspondence with reality. What are they talking about? We'll look again at Matthew 13, 10 through 11. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 11, and he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And in a nutshell, that's what the Matthew 13 parables are all about, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. This word for secret is the um, Greek word mysterion, which sometimes gets translated mystery. And it is a loaded biblical word. It has a lot of background to it. And we're going to spend some extended time talking about this so that we understand the content of what Jesus is saying in the parables of the kingdom. But one reminder real quick, they're the secrets of the kingdom of the heavens. Now we talked earlier on, I mean, that's one of Matthew's catchphrases, right? He loves talking about the kingdom of the heavens. What does that phrase mean, the kingdom of the heavens? Well, we said before what that phrase means, the kingdom of the heavens, is really the idea of the kingdom that comes down from 
heaven. Uh, a lot of the backdrop of Matthew is the book of Daniel. That's one of his huge books that he keeps alluding to, especially in Matthew 13. But in, Matthew, uh, in Daniel, the picture and the imagery is that when the Messiah comes, when God comes to establish his rule over the whole world, it's not the idea of he- earth going up to heaven, it's the idea of heaven coming down to earth. So when we talk about the idea of the kingdom of he- the heavens, implicit in that idea is the idea of the, the heavens joining earth, coming down to earth in order to establish God's kingdom, the kingdom of his Messiah. So what we've got in the parables is secrets or mysteries of the kingdom from the heavens, okay? Now, what about this word mystery? Mystery or secret, you could translate it either way. And like I said, it's a loaded biblical term. It's a term that has a lot of background to it. And you're like, really? Well, yeah. In fact, I'm going to take you to a place uh, that's going to illustrate kind of some of the freight and what is meant by this word for mystery. In fact, I'm going to take you to Daniel, and I'm going to take you to Daniel 2. Daniel 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a big chapter. So you're like, wow, we read two big chapters in the scriptures today. Well, yeah, but I think it's necessary to give you, uh, especially with this word mystery, uh, and you're like, really, just this one word? Well, if you understand this word and how Jesus is using it and how it compares with what's going on in Daniel 2, your ears are going to perk up a little bit more. And we're going to understand, okay, this is some serious stuff, what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 13, okay? So let's read Daniel 2. And as we read Daniel 2, listen for the words, mystery, interpretation, hidden, kingdom language. Listen for those words as we read through it. In the second year, oh, background, who's Daniel? Daniel got taken in the first wave of exile into Babylon. He was, he was a, one of the intellectuals, one of the elites. The Babylonians stole them from the country. They're in uh, exile. And then we've got the veggies thing going on in chapter 1. Uh, and uh, what ends up happening by the end of chapter 1 is Daniel and his friends, his three friends, uh, are elevated to high rank. They're getting trained as wise men. In, listen for the word wisdom, too, in this section. They're getting trained in wise men, as wise men in Babylon. So that's the context of chapter 2 in Daniel. Daniel 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. So you kind of get the picture that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and he gets that it's about something important. He gets that much, but he doesn't understand it. He gets it partially. He understands it partially, but not the full thing. Verse 3, uh, oh, so verse 4, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. 
They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you, you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. You see that? He's got some inkling that his dream has something to do about the times changing, but he doesn't know the full story. He knows some of the interpretation, or at least has some inklings, but he doesn't know the full thing. Therefore, tell to me the dream, and I shall uh, know that you can show me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The, king that the, the, the thing that the king asked for is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, what? Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told, to them, uh, told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon." Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in the vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have made, now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said to, thus to him, Do you not destroy the wise men of Babylon? Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus to, to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And who, he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king, and that you might know the thoughts of your mind." You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. 
The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet and iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the th summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks in pieces to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the furnace of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes and the feet were partly of iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as the iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall be break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain with by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his feet and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained in the king's court. Now again, why did we read all of Daniel 2? Because it helps us understand the freight of the term mysteries of the kingdom of heaven when Jesus uses it in Matthew 13. A mystery or a secret in this biblical sense is the revelation of God's partially hidden wisdom, particularly as it concerns events occurring in the latter days. Did you see that? Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. He got part of it, enough to know that he was disturbed by it. He didn't understand the full thing. In that sense, it was a secret or a mystery, and yet God had revealed, part, revealed it to him. He needed an interpreter with wisdom to reveal the understanding of what is going on and what was going on revealed the kingdom in the latter days. That's what Jesus is alluding to, that kind of a concept. He's talking about something to do with the kingdom, the same kingdom in Daniel, but he's giving new information, new revelation concerning that kingdom and what's going to happen in the times 
of the latter days. We're talking about eschatology. Matthew 13 is all about eschatology. He's talking about, okay, we have some information from the kingdom from the Old Testament. Now I'm going to give you some new revelation. But as you will see, the crowds don't get it. They get it partially, but they don't get the whole thing, nor even the disciples until Jesus, the ultimate man of wisdom, interprets the parables for them. Do you see how similar, actually, that what the parables was to the dream? I mean, they're different, but you've got this image, you've got this weird details that correspond to things in reality. It's very, very, very similar to what's going on with parables. The time frame of the realities the parables are speaking to come from Jesus' ministry, the parable of the sower, where he talks about the word of the kingdom. Well, Jesus has been giving the word of the kingdom in his ministry, but then he also speaks in, say, the parable of the dragnet, the parable of the tares, to the end of the age. So we're talking about the time span from Jesus' ministry to, like, the end, and we're getting new information about that period. That is the content of the parables of the kingdom. They're deceiving, right? Because they seem like simple little stories, but actually profound truth about the kingdom and about new revelation about the kingdom is being given. So we've answered the question, what is a parable? We've answered the question, what is the context of the parables? And we've answered the question, what is the content of the parables of the kingdom, mysteries or secrets of the kingdom from heaven? Fourth, what is the reason for the parables of the kingdom? What is the reason? Now, what's a reason? A reason is something that you look back to for a basis, right? That's what a reason is. It happened prior, but it motivates you to action. And Jesus, thankfully, spells that out. I mean, that's the disciples' question, uh, verse 10 in Matthew 13. Then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will be, have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Why did Jesus start speaking the parables? Because his generation had clear revelation of here's the kingdom. It's here. Here's the kingdom foretaste. Jesus has been very clear. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm doing these miracles by the Spirit. I'm here with the kingdom. And the generation didn't repent. So now what is he doing? He's taking their clear revelation of the kingdom away. That's why Jesus is speaking in parables. Because of the rejection of the generation, he's taking away from those who have not, from those who have not repented. He's taking away from them. The generation is, according to Jesus, it's hearing and seeing. It's heard and seen a lot of great stuff. It's heard and seen a lot of clear revelation about the kingdom and kingdom foretaste through Jesus, but it's not understanding and it's not perceiving. And so now the clarity gets taken away. 
You see, God doesn't speak clearly indefinitely. If a people just continues to reject and reject and reject, given clear revelation, well, then it becomes harder and harder and harder to hear, and clear revelation gets taken away as an act of judgment, as an act of judgment. When God doesn't give his word clearly anymore, it's an act of judgment. Okay, that's the reason for the parables. What's the purpose for the parables of the kingdom? A reason is different than a purpose. A reason looks back as a basis for action. A purpose looks forward and says, okay, because of that, in the future, I'm going to act now, right? That's the difference between a reason and a purpose. Well, you see some of that purpose for the parables and what we just read. Jesus' purpose is they don't understand. They're not seeing. They have not. So uh, I'm going to give them parables that are on the surface clear, but actually are speaking profound realities, and they're not going to get it because the surface reality of the parable obscures the profound realities that's being spoken of. So Jesus' purpose, one of the purposes in the parables, is to conceal from the crowds, from his generation, as an act of judgment. But there's another purpose. So parables conceal, but they also reveal. Verse 34 in Matthew 13. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Meaning what? God is speaking truths that God has only known and has decreed from the foundation of the world, but now he's revealing them. And with those with ears to hear, even from among the crowds, the door's still kind of a crack open for individuals, you can hear profound mysteries of the kingdom. But as we see in the chapter, usually those mysteries, those revelations, the revelation of those things hidden from the foundation of the world are for the disciples. So, Parables conceal and they reveal. They conceal and they reveal. It's like a one-way mirror. You guys know what a one-way mirror is, right? You look at a one-way mirror from one direction, you can't see anything. Uh, so, you, uh, you know, uh, you can't see it. It conceals. You look at it from the other side, so you've got two camps. Those are looking from one side, one are looking from another. Look from one side, you can't see anything. You look at it from the other side, you can see everything which is exactly what we get to with this question, who is the audience of the parables of the kingdom? There's two. There's two audiences for the parables of the kingdom. Crowds get, uh, the crowds get a lot of parables, but with no explanation. And for them, they're on this side of the one-way mirror, and they, they, they get the everyday life stuff, but they can't see into the profound mysteries part. The other audience is the disciples. They're on the other side of the one-way mirror, and the disciples get really clear explanations. They get really clear explanations. So there is two audiences to the parables. They conceal for the crowds, for those who aren't repentant, those who aren't disciples, and they reveal if you have repented and if you are a disciple. Two audiences, crowds and disciples. Which leads us to our seventh question, which actually that what we just said about audiences is feeds into this. What is the structure? 
of the parables of the kingdom. Matthew's a really uh, structured guy. He structures things quite heavily. Uh, And there's a ton of structure in Matthew 13 to the parables. Did you notice that a lot of the parables start with something like this? The kingdom of heaven is like dot, 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 right? A lot of them start that way. In fact, six start that way. But did you notice that the first didn't start that way? The first didn't start that way. The first started this way. Behold, the sower went out, dot, dot, dot. And the last doesn't end that way. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like, dot, dot, dot. So you've got the middle ones, the six in the middle that deal with the kingdom proper. And then you've got the sower on one end. And then you've got the scribe bringing out old and new treasures on the other end. Why is that? Because there's a progression. There's a progression. The first parable deals with hearing and responding to words about the kingdom. Then we move into the nature of the kingdom. And then we end with a question. Do you understand? Did you hear like I told you at the very beginning? See, Matthew is very, very, very structured. So let me fly through the chapter and give you the structure. So the parable of the sower encompasses 1 through 23, and it's all about those who hear the word of the kingdom. So we get the parable of the sowers to the crowds, and Jesus ends, let the one having ears to hear, let him hear. The parable ends in 9, and then the disciples come for an explanation. Uh, And Jesus gives them a reason for the parables, and then he goes into an explanation to the disciples going through verse 23. Then we get into the parable's about the kingdom, the parables of the secrets of the kingdom from verses 24 through 50. And those are split up. Remember I said there were six. They're split up into two groups of three. Did you notice the first three parables are to the crowds, but the last three parables are only for the disciples? So the first three parables are to the crowds. We got the parable of the darnel or the tares or the weeds in the field. Then you've got the parable of the mustard seed in the field. Then you've got the parable of the yeast in the flour. And then uh, there's an interjection by Matthew to say about the purpose of the parables. Then it explicitly says in the text that Jesus left the crowds. And then he gives an explanation of the parable of the weeds in the field to the disciples. And then he continues with three more parables only to the disciples in verses 44 through 50. The parable of the treasure hidden in the field, the parable of the merchant searching for fine pearls, and the parable of the dragnet, and it's um, not only the dragnet, but then they get an explanation that's very similar to the parable of the weeds. And then it all ends in verses 51 through 52, do you understand? One who has ears, parable of the sower, Nature of the kingdom, explanations only to the disciples, stuff for the crowds, only stuff for the disciples, and then it ends with a question to the disciples, do you understand? So this is highly structured stuff, and it takes a lot of thought and meditation. That's why it's wisdom literature to understand what Jesus is talking about with regard to the kingdom. Which brings us to our last question, what is the application What is the application of the parables of the kingdom? In other words, why is this here? You know, we've got it for the original disciples, and then we know that Matthew was writing to his Jewish audience. 
And like we said at the end of chapter 12, a Jewish audience that is now facing separation from Israel and that is like, well, wait a minute, if Jesus is the Messiah, what, what about the kingdom? So this gives them the answer, doesn't it? What happens next? And they need to know that. They need to know what happens next to join with the disciples, the church, separating from Israel. They need to know what the kingdom's all about. What's it going to look like from here on out? What's the program going to look like from here on out? Really, we get the application in verses 51 and 52. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, which I always chuckle a little bit when I see that. It's like, oh, really? You understood all those things? All right. Um, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe, someone who interprets the scriptures and applies them, who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, or literally is a disciple, that's the word for disciple, is a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, is like what? A master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What's he talking about? You want to understand the kingdom, you need the old concepts from the Old Testament, and you need the new stuff that I just gave you. And you need to understand that first as disciples, and then if you're a scribe, someone who's teaching, you need to teach this stuff to others so that others understand about the nature of the kingdom in this time. A lot of the application of this whole chapter is understanding. It's kind of information-driven in a sense, but the reality is if you understand reality, if you understand the way things really are, that shapes how you live, right? Uh, I, 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 uh, I'm riding my bike a lot more and driving my car a lot less because gas is over $5 a gallon. I understand the reality of that every time I go to the pump, right? We understand, in a much more profound and bigger way, we understand reality about the kingdom and it shapes and drives how you live, which is exactly what the application is. So a lot of this time in Matthew 13 is going to be understanding. Do you understand what the nature of the kingdom is and the kingdom program from Jesus' ministry to the end of the age? And we're somewhere in between those two things, aren't we? And so it applies to us as well. If I was to encourage you this week to start doing something, I would say start reading and rereading and meditating on Matthew 13, because it takes a lot of thought, takes a lot of meditation, and it will be priming your heart for what we're going to be seeing in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Jesus, you are ultimate wisdom embodied. We understand very, 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 very little. We depend upon your revelation, and we depend even for you to explain your revelation when you give it. We thank you for giving us the scriptures. We thank you for giving us a clear word. Lord, you clearly say we are sinners. We deserve wrath. You always describe it as burning and weeping and gnashing of teeth. You describe it that way, Jesus. You who knows it better than any of us. And you call for repentance and faith in you. And then you call us to follow you. 
and to wait. To wait for the kingdom that will come down from the heavens. Lord, I pray that we would do so. Pray that you, if there are any here who do not you know you, that this wouldn't be concealed from them, but that you would reveal and open their eyes the nature of your kingdom and that you would grant repentance, that there would be no one with path soil, with rocky soil, or with weedy soil, but Lord, you would, we would be people of good soil, hearts, ready to hear your word and ready to act on it. Lord, help us to understand in coming weeks as we walk through Matthew 13 and help us to live by these things. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.